it, it can get really quite complicated. And that's kind of what I'm seeing with Lightning. So, you know, I I think it's the, the cool thing about Bitcoin is that it's actually understandable for, for the audience of people who want to use it without getting too much in the weeds, you know, like this is the first major decentralized system. And Welcome, everybody. That was a little bit of Kira Bickers, who is our guest today. And thanks, everyone, for joining me today with the Learning with Lowell show. This episode, we're going to separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of the crypto space, looking at the technology and sidestepping a lot of the hype, or I like to say, Golden Them Hills type talk that is in the blockchain space sometimes. We go over a dozen different topics, looking at mental models, gold standard, the Fed centralization, uh, learning, China versus U.S. competition, economic policy, 1984, how uh, crypto could help protests like the Canadian truckers uh, be a little bit more insulated from their government and much, much more. So I think you're going to like this episode. Let's just dive right into it. And please leave a comment or write me an email. Let me know what you think. You know, a small one, but uh, how has, you know, Bitcoin impacted your life? Like from where you were going originally to where you are now, how, how big of a change is that in terms if you can kind of like mind shift it? That's a great question. I think so I got interested in Bitcoin like when I was, it was in 2012. So I'm not quite sure how old I was then, but it was like uh, around the Ron Paul sort of liberty movement here in the US. And I mean, I, I wouldn't say that my life was like totally devoid of purpose. I would say that I was always a person that felt that I had a lot of integrity, but it was, it's kind of hard to find a career when you're autistic like that. Um, like, you know, if, if you have really strong political views that are basically contradicted by every area of society, um, like, where do you go? <laughs> and I think, you know, without Bitcoin, I wouldn't have been able to like step into that integrity and work in conjunction or in alignment with, with my value set. So, I mean, that's maybe that's a really big statement of, of how, how much Bitcoin has changed my life, but certainly more than monetarily, that's, that's been the biggest shift. I mean, most of my social circle of, of close friends, I've all met through Bitcoin, um, which is another bizarre thing, right? And I guess social media has kind of evolved um, over the same amount of time. So it's much easier to find people who share your values than it was before. So it sounds like Bitcoin's kind of like where your home was. Yeah. Where your home is. Yeah, I'd say so. Maybe it's a little bit chaotic and it's, it, you know, I wouldn't say Bitcoin Twitter or anything like that would, would be a stable home for anyone sane, but, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, I've met a, such a great group of people and especially finding myself more in the, the technical part of the ecosystem. Um, a lot of the developers, a lot of the cryptographers are just like really humble people that are not only cryptographers, but economists and philosophers in their own right. That makes sense. The, is there... Is there, are there, are there aspects of Bitcoin or blockchain technology that you're still very fascinated with understanding that maybe like even still alluded to the state that you're still trying to like grasp with understanding it? Yeah, absolutely. So like the lightning network, which is kind of a scalability proposal for blockchains and maybe even taking a step back. It's like one of the biggest problems for blockchains is, is the scalability question is like, how do you get more transactions in a decentralized system? Um, it's a really hard problem to solve. So Bitcoin is you know, minimum viable decentralization to not get shut down, but, you know, throughput is not great. So the Lightning Network is a scalability layer to, to Bitcoin. And there's many of these different types of competing uh, implementations, proposals, what have you. 
Um, and I don't know much about lightning it, relative to the people who are working on it, I would say. Um, I just started a newsletter called the Simple Lightning Newsletter, which is designed to help me and the audience kind of explore the, the technology that is lightning and see how we can actually get, how we can preserve a lot of the properties of Bitcoin, primarily censorship resistance, um, you know, self-sovereignty uh, and get more, more transactions basically how can how can we make this whole thing scale into the future and how how can it still be around in 100 years is it is it kind of so in a couple of your uh your your videos you discussed how like when a, a blockchain or cryptocurrency uh, i'm gonna get the terms mixed up but i think it was a cryptocurrency uh has some type of centralizing feature to like have those uh optimizations um it usually fails is it is it um is lightning some type of pseudo centralization or is it just trying to have like a an advanced networking layer on bitcoin to make it work better hmm does it have some so sort of centralization it's sort of like i'll answer this in a sort of securitist way here but it's it's like the the problem with decentralization at large is that it's it's really quite expensive and the the thing that people who are like very pro decentralization sort of begrudgingly fail to recognize at times is that there's a lot of benefits to centralization, not just reduction of costs, but also like mediation of disputes and, and things like that. Um, I think what cryptographers in the lightning area are trying to experiment with is how can we do uh, dispute resolution, mediation, all trustlessly. Um, those are sort of like big words, maybe even buzzwords, but it's like, how can we replicate what exists in, in payment processors, um, without them, you know, how do we do this in a trustless manner? How do we do this with two parties and, and a protocol instead of three parties and having to give over your custody? Hmm. What does this dispute resolution mean in, as, a, as, as it relates to what we're talking about? Yeah, so like if we take Bitcoin as an example mm -hmm. to frame what I mean with that, it's like before Bitcoin existed, what, what cryptographers I believe were trying to do is they were trying to obtain the same properties of of cash, but in a digital sense, right? So in that sense, it's like, if I hand over a digital file, I wanna be sure that I haven't copied it and that it's fully yours when I hand it over. And it's like, how do you do that without an authorizing third party? And again, maybe that's a lot of words, but dis dispute resolution really means like, if we have a contract, how do we make sure that the rules of engagement are followed? Right. And like, maybe we can take it to be a really, really simple contract, like, like just payments, or maybe we take it to be a more complicated contract of like payments over time. Um, so it's, it, it can get really quite complicated. And that's kind of what I'm seeing with lightning. So, you know, I, I think it's the, the cool thing about Bitcoin is that it's actually understandable for, for the audience of people who want to use it without getting too much in the weeds, you know? Like this mm -hmm. is the first major decentralized system. And I do think it's possible for people to understand. I think once you start to get into lightning, the value proposition changes a little bit because, because it's so much more technical, it's maybe not worth understanding the details. It's sort mm -hmm. of just one of those things where if it works, it's a win for all of us. <laughs> and, if, and if it doesn't end up working, um, then you didn't waste your time trying to figure it out, I guess. But maybe I'm a little bit of a masochist that way since I, I'm I'm so consumed by it. No, I I think uh, knowledge, like the pursuit of knowledge, especially for auto autodidacts, um, is like an obsession in and of itself. Like sometimes, yeah. My wife can attest to this. Like I I'll, I'll be reading something 
and she'll look at me and it looks like I'm having a heart attack. And it's like, I can, I can see how I can apply this to so many different areas. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, like, a, yeah, I don't know, like she says, it looks like I'm taking drugs when I'm like learning new things. <laughs> so yeah, it's, no, it's, I resonate with that. Yeah. So it's kind of like that. It's like uh, lightning, you know, maybe, maybe esoteric in terms of it is technical comp, uh, complexness, but it's like, if you have the interest, you know, for the, you know, essentially a decade and it's still going strong. And uh, I think the story goes like you first bought uh, Bitcoin because uh, your, your, your girlfriend was tired of you uh, speaking about it all the, all the time. But yeah. um, <laughs> like, I, I imagine the passion is strong. It is, it's not, you know, you know, I think it's just like fun. Like it's like it's self-reinforcing fun in terms of learning these like really, really uh, deep technical things. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't like have the value of learning it in and of itself, usually how you can apply it later to something else is, is like, you'll never know how you can apply it later. That's the fun part, I think. That's true. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of an enigma that way, right? It's mm -hmm. like some, sometimes you're just, you're just drawn in and compelled by the the mystery of complexity. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, uh, you don't really know how it's going to be useful in your life. And certainly I feel that way at, at low level stuff, but I mean, it, it, if it's an end in, in, in itself, then, then it is right. And I actually, I, I contemplated naming the book Bitcoin Clarity, Bitcoin, the value of beauty instead, but I felt like maybe that wouldn't have mainstream appeal, <laughs> you know? yeah. but I do feel like the pursuit of, of building decentralized systems for the sake of censorship resistance is such a beautiful concept. And then when you actually see it implemented, it's just like layers and layers of, of, of beauty really to me. Right. But then I, of course, sound a little bit odd when I look at technology through that lens. I don't think it's a, a, a common way to, to do so is is it is it like uh for, from your point of view and maybe it's hard to see it because like you're living in it but like if you look took a step out do you think it's like when neo is seeing um i forget his name but he's like the <laughs> trader and he's looking at the like the lines of code and neo sees the lines of code so like everyone else is like just seeing the code but you're like seeing like the woman in the red dress or whatever it's supposed to be. <laughs> i love that i just saw the matrix four actually it's also i i thought it was pre pretty good but yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny because with code, it's like I, I used to code more often, used to be engineer, and I'm, I've sort of stepped out of that that role, but um, I can still understand when code is beautiful, right? It's like it's beautiful in the same way a good sentence is beautiful when it's like clean and short, right? And it, it like punches and it's like you can completely understand it and there's just like total clarity around it. Like that to me is beautiful code. Um, but it's also true when you see the inverse and you're like, wow, this is like really ugly, like long spaghetti code, but it works. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's like, it's just like, yeah, it's different, different ways of beauty, I guess. Yeah. I've been reading more like open source repos. And so mm. you, you get a little bit of both of that, both of those, uh, both sides of that spectrum where it's like big and ugly, but like elegant and quite nice where it's like. I, I could I could spend a whole you know month trying to make something that, that complex. It would, it would probably start really ugly, and then I just like draft it over. But uh, and it's in each one because you have so many different levels of expertise doing it, which I I think that's the kind of the fun of open source, which is like a little bit of what Bitcoin and blockchain te technologies I think is interesting to people is because like there are multiple layers for you to get involved in, and that's why I think in particular why it was like your book is so fascinating because it adds a new layer which is no code at all. It's like mental model based and understanding this technology and how it applies to people's lives versus just like a news article, like Bitcoin up $10, you know, or something like that. Like it actually shows like, sure. how, do, how does this affect their lives in a real way? 
Sure. I mean, my, my, I don't know if I'd call it a goal of the book, but I, I suppose one of my purposes for, for writing it was really to, to entertain people who had a similar mind of, of, you know, really appreciating mental models. It can be quite frustrating to try and learn about something like Bitcoin when you Google it, right? Because it's like the two paths that you have laid out in front of you are either um, the really technical path or maybe like the price hype path. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's a third, which is like the the culture, like the Twitter, the Twitter Bitcoin culture sort of thing. But um, it's a little bit tribalistic. So it's like, can you can you have like this philosophical approach to to systems and, and just appreciate the beauty in them without having to to fall into everything that comes with with being a part of the tribe? <laughs> Is there like a litmus test to tell if you're falling or if you're rising in that, in that situation? Hmm. Like, how, like, how do you ground yourself when you're being hit by that lightning? Hmm. The, the, the lightning of the tribe is what you're referring to here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like I, I think, I think it's so just innate in us and like social media brings that out so much, right? It's like maybe less so with Facebook. I don't know. Cause I'm not really on that platform, but every platform sort of has a different way of, of handling that. Um, I think on Twitter in particular, when you, there's sort of like this desire for recognition, the desire to be retweeted, it's sort of like inevitable, um, unless you just don't follow anyone, which, <laughs> which is, is maybe the best approach. It's sort of like, maybe this is just a personal philosophy, but sometimes I feel like when I read other people's books that it's almost like a dangerous thing because it puts an idea in my head that is not my idea. Mm-hmm. And it's really difficult to defend against that um, for me. And, 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 and I try to go into it like aware of it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's one thing to like see good ideas and to adopt them into, your, into yourself. But um, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's really hard. I, de- I definitely don't have an answer for that. Yeah, I, I was thinking that uh, like, you kind of like feel the edges of it where it's like if you're getting into tribalism or not would be like how humble are you you know like if you're mm-hmm. if you're struggling with your level of humility and going into a book to make sure you don't lose yourself in the book like that's probably sounds like you're on the right side of the spectrum um versus going into a book and be like this is horrible because this is like you're going with pre- uh, preconceived notions based on what you already know um but there's like a balance between like I, I have the same problem where it's like uh i'm reading something and to give it like it's full weight i like to think of it as correct from the author's point of view and then you know, read it and then kind of like break apart the ideas, you know, like I, I think of my head, I know it's like all one brain, right. But like, I think of it, like I take in the information and I have a firewall around it. Mm. And then I, I slowly bring in the information that I'm sure doesn't have viruses in it. And then I, <laughs> I apply it to my life uh, using like some, some of my mental models and stuff to, to see like, is this, is this good? Is this not good? Is it, is it applicable to different time periods and stuff like that? So um, I love that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Uh, I don't, a neuroscientist would have to comment on what, what that actual process is, but that's kind of like how I think about it. Um, the I am curious. I, I know we wanted to touch on mental models a, a, a bit, especially as we're relating to the book, which is a great deal about mental models. Uh, but are, are you consistently making new mental models for different systems? Or do you have like an omni mental model that updates and refreshes as you kind of like, like, like a tree of life of knowledge that you uh, refresh? with new information and new hypotheses to see what's right and what's wrong. Yeah, I think, well, it, so I think the mental model is sort of like 
the way of framing it where it's like, okay, this thing is like applicable, but more recently I've sort of shifted into thinking more in, in like symbolic terms, like use the term tree of life. And I could think of like, you know, at least a hundred different images that come to my mind and like a whole evolutionary path for the, for that sequence of, of symbols. So that I've been, I've been starting to shift my thinking in that direction. Um, although I would say there's less direct um, use with that, right? It's more just like, it's more of a tool for meaning than a, than a tool for, for, for usefulness <laughs> in a, in, in a, in a pragmatic sense. Um, but yeah, I think I am always updating my mental models, trying to find new mental models. Um, it, but it, I think so visually that, um, often I need to, to draw that out to kind of make that concrete. Mm -hmm. Do you have a really good memory then? No, I have a terrible memory. Really? Like, uh, yeah. Uh, the, there's a every, every book I've read on the subject of memory in terms of like how to improve it basically uses some form of visual cue to retain the information. So that's true. It's usually like, you know, if you're thinking of the number one, it's like a bunch of snakes is one. And so as you, you flip through a deck, you can basically have like an animal or something, some really crazy looking thing. So you can memorize, you know, the whole deck of cards. And so if you start from a visual standpoint, I would assume that, you know, you're able to retain the information even better. But um, I mean, I think the only way that I've ever been able to like retain information is if I is it's it's not just like data in it has to be you have to process the data in some way and put it in your own terms in order for for me to 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 stick to have it in my in, to have it in my working memory yeah that makes sense so is there is there a mental model you've recent or recently been working on uh that you can share like kind of like the process that you went through to making it development a recent one so i mean the book is framed with the with the idea which i stole this mental model mental model from someone else it was great it was like the idea of systems thinking mm -hmm. but not so recent i would say um you know i think i've been thinking so much about symbols that I, I i don't think i have a good mental model to grab from um writing a little bit of poetry which i don't know if that's a mental model necessarily <laughs> it's, it's just kind of expressing yourself in more of an artistic way instead of the scientific way so maybe that's why i don't have one uh, readily available as I've, I've sort of been leaning more into my artistic brain and away from the the logical side of it that's interesting the uh is there a type of poetry that you like in particular um no but i mean like we're talking about memory so it's mm -hmm. like and you know, it's like, I think if I can, if I can write something that feels extremely meaningful to me, then I'll remember it more. Right. Yeah. So in that sense, that's kind of what I mean by, by more of a, a poetry way of phrasing it. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Hmm. Well, when we're, we're talking about poetry, there's like a quote that pops in my head, sure. uh, at, you know, but it's like, uh, why does a bird, I don't think it's poetry, but I love the quote. But it's like, why does a bird sing, or something like that? Like, why does a bird sing? Hmm. And, uh, and the answer is like, a, a bird sing sings because it has a song. So some sometimes <laughs> like, which I like. I think that's like kind of kind of beautiful in itself. But, um, well, I, I, do you, are you posting your poetry somewhere? Is this kind of like an internal thing that you're just enjoying? I've, I've literally only started like the past three days. Oh, I okay. Yeah. So this is um. This is just like, I guess I'm just going through this, this flux in life of, of feeling um, a little bit more artistic that way. But yeah, it's a really good way of expression. And absolutely, I would, I would share that, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit easier to share things that are like logical and useful. You know? 
Um, it's sharing creativity is is a is a much harder thing because um, you're trying. You don't necessarily see an obvious reason to it. And I, I love the poem that you shared because it's like, why does a bird share a song? Right? It's because it has a song. Um, it just it just because it has one. Because so, yeah. yeah, and humans don't operate that way for a number of different reasons. Yeah, we're weird. We're a weird species. The right? I, there was like I don't know what I was reading, but it was basically like someone was equating consciousness to like a person screaming in the middle of the night. It's like it's like I guess. I mean, like yeah, I mean, other other animals that probably don't have consciousness look pretty happy. Um, <laughs> so like it, it's like a it's like a it's like Spider Man. Like great power comes great responsibility. Like we're we're aware of our suffering, so we should probably do something about it. But um, uh, so it seems like we're on similar trajectories because uh, literally like the last three. Pardon, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, that's interesting. You tell me about your perspective on that. How, what do you mean by that? Oh, the, the consciousness as a scream in the dark? No, the, the you being on a similar trajectory. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm learning art stuff too. Like I just started uh, learning to draw. Oh, I would, that's a, that's a great skill. Yeah. Well, it, it's neat be, as we talk about mental models and like uh, systems thinking, because mm. now that like I'm learning it, it's like everything I see, I can deconstruct. And like, I see like, oh, it's like three shapes and two lines to like make most things. And uh, it's kind of neat when you look at it from like the building blocks versus maybe like other ways of learning where it's like, uh, like top down. I don't know if there's other ways of learning because I'm just learning it from the way that I did research and said like building blocks on up. And so, uh, sure. but literally it's like four or five days I'm into it. And I drew, <laughs> like I drew, a, I tried drawing a picture of my wife at day one is horrible uh and so like a month from now i'm gonna do it again and uh it's just interesting how uh you can apply that like the ability to deconstruct or remember things about your environment um like the utility of it as well as just it's it's also quite fun like learning it and applying what i'm learning in like a direct way that i can see yeah, I, I wish I learned how to draw because I'm like writing a series of books that are all illustrated and often I'll just like describe the concept and like pass it to an illustrator and it's mm -hmm. it's usually much it's consistently better than I would be able to produce but I'm envious of her ability to to produce it. Um, I know I, I did try to learn how to draw right and like you, you definitely pick up some mental models there where it was like um, one was like seeing the the negative space, right? Instead of mm -hmm. looking at the object, you look at the negative space around the object. And another really interesting way to approach learning how to draw was to look at how uh, how illustrations evolved over time and how people didn't really understand the concept of like perception in, in old school drawings mm -hmm. where like the, the whole idea is like, you know, when you look out onto like a bridge against the ocean or something like that, and you can see it kind of vanishing into a point. It's yeah. like, the early illustrators like did not see that or they they must have looked at that and saw something different it's, it's sort of unclear what was happening in the human brain at that time but they mm -hmm. they couldn't obviously produce that it's like when you look at um egyptian hieroglyphs and it's all very um flat there's yeah. no perspective in it or very little perspective other than the the making the more important people larger kind of thing yeah i see what you mean the I don't know why paintings were like that or uh, artwork over like the Renaissance. And it's almost like, the, it's almost like the first time someone saw percept, like saw the ability to see in a particular way, then everybody was given that, that same type of vision, right? It's mm -hmm. like someone had to do it first. 
there's like this old story from the middle ages like I don't even know if it's true but like scribes used to all read aloud apparently um according to this sort of like old school story that I heard and um uh one particular monk started reading in his head and like before that like nobody knew you could even do that and it, it's, it's like yeah right and it's like crazy because you think of those people as more or less the same there's definitely people right and like it wasn't that long ago like a little bit more than a thousand years ago or something like that so it's just pretty remarkable to think how much um one person one person thinking maybe we don't think of those as mental models but like the ability to read inside your head is like you, you take that so much for granted mm-hmm. there are stories of people who went to the doctor because they had voices in their head and it was just mm. their voice they were talking to themselves yeah and they didn't right? know what it was <laughs> they didn't know what it was or how some people see in 2d versus 3d oh or like they when they see, close their eyes yeah when like when you imagine stuff in your head some people some people see in 2d or 3d some people only see descriptions of things that come to them sure yeah so it's like sure. i think dyslexic people see in 3d I think that's what I was reading. So I'm pretty dyslexic and I think that that's true, but I obviously don't know what other people see. Mm-hmm. So not, it's kind of hard to validate. Yeah. Well, I think they did some research on it. For anyone out there that knows the, the research or if I'm saying this wrong, just write me a mean email. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure I'm right on this. Like, uh, it's like people see, uh, see different things, yeah, but I believe you. Yeah. Um, I always like the comment section and stuff. Cause if you say something wrong, I, I, there's literally a principle around this. I think it's called like Murphy's principles. It doesn't even matter if I say it right. Cause like the principle is if you say it wrong, someone will correct you. Like that's like how you get to the <laughs> truth. It isn't like saying what you think the, the closest version of the truth is. It's just saying something egregiously wrong and someone will correct it. Um, which, you know, which is kind of an interesting way to crowdsource uh, knowledge if you don't know what you know. <laughs> um, but uh, circling back to uh I guess uh, let's start at like the blockchain and then work our way down. We talked about lightning. Are there other trends in this space that you're following that maybe um, people who aren't as in depth as you are would not be aware of? Yeah, I would say um, one would be federations and basically experimenting with the concept of something less decentralized and and seeing what trade-offs come when you increase centralization, but, but still maintain some level of decentralization. Um, and another would be, um, maybe things like DEXs that I find personally pretty interesting. I could, I could probably give different rants about both of those. So I, I know what Federation is, I, I'm not familiar with DEXs. What's a DEX? Um, decentralized exchange. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What about those two things is interesting you right now? So... So it's like, you know, I, I view all of this crypto stuff, if, if you set aside all the price speculation of it, it's, it's sort of like, we're all just experimenting with what could work for new financial rails, right? And that's such a loaded term, right? Because people want to do so many different things inside of the area of finance. So, and it's pretty hard to separate the price aspect from it. Um, but what I think is really interesting about federations is that there's this um, technology called uh, blind signatures, and that was produced by this, this this guy named David Chom, like way back when in the 80s. I think that's right. Or maybe he just utilized um, blind signatures. So I might have misspoken. Someone can write me an angry email now. <laughs> um, but so there, basically, like what I like to do is like I like to think about what are we inventing in crypto land and how is that 
a replication of what has existed in the past. Uh, so with, particularly with this idea of, of using um, blind signatures and federations, you can come at this idea of um, Chami and digital eCash, which basically like, I'll, I'll try and give you the vision instead of explaining the technology, okay? So it, it's, I have to like kind of slow down and, and focus my brain to be able to do that. But um, back in the day, like we used to go, not we, but you know, other people like used to go to banks, give them the gold and then they'd get an IOU. And the bank would take custody of your gold and stuff like this. And, and you would get essentially a dollar that you could go exchange around. And that, that had a number of interesting properties. Like it was lighter than the gold. Um, it was more secure in a, lot of, in a lot of senses because you weren't physically holding the, the thing of value anymore. Like that, that, that custody risk was, was handed off to another, another party. Mm -hmm. um, so you could look at those as good or bad things. Like there's definitely good and bad aspects to it. Um, and with federations, what we think we might be able to do is we might be able to hand over our Bitcoin to a, a federation and the federation can hand you back an IOU. And what's really cool about this is you're basically replicating the, the, the gold model that used to exist with banks, um, but there's an, because it's invented by cypherpunks and not, um, not you know, bureaucrats and politicians, there's, we're, we're adding, we're actually with, with the use of the blind signature technology, potentially adding another layer of privacy where the bank doesn't actually know who you are or how much you've deposited. So when I look at it in the future, like 50, 50 years or something like that, I'm like, wow, if federations actually not only work, but then people can understand them and start using them. Like, what does that world look like? You know, that's pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one that I think is like en endlessly interesting. Uh, and then the other being DEXs with this decentralized exchange concept is like, you know, anyone who's kind of dabbled in the crypto world is like, well, they've if, if, if they've only ever dabbled, then they probably bought Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency at an exchange and their funds are probably still parked there, which means that, you know, you're not holding your private keys. So the exchange is really custodying that for you. And the exchange is a business. So if the government compels them by force to do something, you know, with those keys that are against your interest, they, they basically have to do that in order to survive. So um, most of the interesting properties about crypto are not, are not um, to being taken advantage of or utilized by anyone who's holding their funds in an exchange. So it's like, okay, how do we replicate the, the idea of an exchange, the ability to, to have a market for, for cryptocurrencies without without using that um, centralized third-party company that is beholden to the governments that regulate them. Um, and that, that's what people are exploring with the DEXs. Um, another angle that I like, that I, that I think is a, a unique angle to approach thinking about DEXs is back in the early days of crypto, um, everyone was creating like forks of Bitcoin, right? So like most people know of Litecoin and then there was like, I don't know, Feathercoin and there was just like a series of these. Um, and the, now that's happening with Ethereum, um, occasionally people will change certain properties of the, of the chain to like have some sort of competitive edge or advantage, but like primarily they're taking the, the code base of those open source, uh, chains and just, you know, changing minor things in the early days, that would be changing things like total supply or divisibility or, or something like this. And, and now, um, with Ethereum, maybe they're changing the amount of decentralization that they have, or maybe they're changing a smart contract language or, or whatever, right? So the, the, the 
the thing is, is like people are creating a whole bunch of these layer ones and maybe even tokens on top of the layer ones, but you know, that, that can get pretty complex. So the, the problem with that from an industry perspective, or you could take it from an investor perspective is like, how do you value any of these things? Right. It's like, maybe the value of these things is zero because, uh, because they're just almost exact replicas of the, of, of, of something larger. So um, what's really cool about the decks and the innovations there is um, it, it's a bit, it's a bit tricky to explain without getting into the technicals of it. But basically, if you don't know what the value of what these coins are, um, the DEX has helped, I think, determine, if not real prices, like some sort of sane price. Like I'm, 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 I'm struggling here with the terminology because none of those words feel exactly right. But basically, basically, it, you have in order to sell um, a coin or a token at an exchange, you have to a decentralized exchange you have to stake or put up liquidity on this other side of the swap, right? So saying it a different way, if you create, if I create like, uh, I don't know, I don't want to be a shit coiner. So it's like, what am I going to create? Well, some, somebody creates like, um, I don't know. What's a, what's a silly name for a coin? Uh, Shogun coin. Shogun coin. Okay. So someone creates Shogun coin and, and we don't know what it's worth. Uh, a liquidity provider, an investor or a whale, whatever you want to call them, can put up liquidity on the other side of the swap. So they could like put up Bitcoin or put up Ethereum or whatever it is. And now people can trade between those two assets until liquidity is depleted, right? And like, mm-hmm. uh, so you've basically turned something that, you've basically turned something that's essentially vapor. Like it, you just printed bits and nobody knows what those bits are valued at. And you've created a market price for it. And there's risk to you because you could lose your liquidity in the swap. Um, so it, it, it gets really complicated really quickly. But the point of the, the reason why it's interesting is because we're all trying to figure out what these things are worth. And this is like a decentralized way to figure out to, to figure out what these new protocols are potentially worth. Or priced at, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> Which may be two different things. Yeah, but it makes sense. It's like you know, barbed wire for the West. You guys are trying to find a way to like pen in the area so people can settle it versus, you know, shooting each other or like having a Wild West type of feel. Um, yeah. Wow. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because otherwise it's just like, you know, if you're trying to figure out what something's worth, it was just like, who's, who, what? what's the loudest? Like, what do you hear yeah. about the most? Like, that's not really real. Yeah, you could set up like a bot to watch Elon Musk and wait for him to mention one and then right. start buying. <laughs> <laughs> which is you know this is like it's so speculative and there's just like uh it's it's kind of it's kind of bleak at times well this actually uh the, these two topics centralization and kind of like the gold standard uh parallelism of bitcoin is something that a reviewer of yours wrote about so it's like mm. it's a little i'm like a little shoehorning in a little bit but i there's like two lines of inquiry and they kind of follow those two different directors so we can start with like the, the gold one, but um, so there's a guy named or person named Kirk on Goodreads and they asked some really great questions. So Kirk, if you're out there, you know, this is for you. Um, and uh, so the first one is, and I'm, I'm reading literally what he said for or what they said verbatim. So uh, there's a lot of discussion around, and you know, let me know if you want me to just send the text to you, but there's a lot of discussion around the fixed supply of Bitcoin, you know, 21 million or whatever it is mm-hmm. and its benefits. But to anyone familiar with the history of the gold standard, having a fixed 21 million Bitcoin sounds like a harbinger of a future broken 
of a, of a future broken economic system. Fixing a currency to a physical and limited asset has been done before when we had the USD on the gold standard. The system created so much pressure on our economy that one of the most famous speeches in American history was about how the pressure made Americans feel like they were being crucified on a cross of gold. The more people use Bitcoin, the less Bitcoin will be available, which will also apply pressure to the economic system. We went off the gold standard to alleviate that pressure. So how does Bitcoin prevent uh, such a, a system of pressure from happening again? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question that I often ask myself, actually. And, you know, if, if, if you find yourself sort of in the middle of the Bitcoin tribe, like it, it's an, it seems like a very obvious question to ask because nobody else in the, in the tribe seems to be asking it. It's sort of like, uh, you know, people are just cheering endlessly for the, for the transition away from the dollar to some sort of like Bitcoin reserve currency, which it's not obvious to me that that is all um, sunshine and rainbows, right? So uh, I, I, I'm really happy Bitcoin exists. I'll say that. And I'll say, you know, the, the, inflation, the inflationary environment that we're in has a lot of obvious flaws because we're living through that and like we're kind of watching a little bit of the demise you know of of this like last this last rush of uh, a fiat well all the money printing that's been going on um but i think what's less obvious to us because we're living in such a painful time of inflation especially you know in the us what is it now like it's reported at like seven or, or more percent so it's probably really like double that or something um it, it's it's less obvious at times like this to see the clear benefits that we've gained from from this monetary system. So what 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 that is to me is like when you print all this money, you get to experiment with a lot of different things in in society, or at least what comes to my mind is with tech in particular. It's like how easy it is to fundraise, how easy it is to try your hand at a startup. Like those are all probable gifts of of the inflationary environment that we're in. Um, so, so there's that. And, and how, if, if his question is, how does Bitcoin solve that? Particularly mm -hmm. he framed it in the, in more of the status con, um, context, right? So it's like, how do we, how do, how, how does the state survive this? Um, so my understanding of American history was that we were in a lot of debt from the very beginning, just financing war after war after war. And we got kind of lucky in our position with World War II that um, made us sort of the dominant player that could sort of de define the rules of engagement for the net, the way the new monetary system would work after the Bretton Woods agreement stuff. So I think I all, all we can do is speculate on how this would help. And it, I'm so cautious around this because I'm not sure I'm not sure that it does, you know, it's like the, the coolest innovation of Bitcoin is that the, it, it cannot be seized from you. And if there's any hope at all, you know, it's, we, we do have, it's good that we have an option for scarce money, but we are not mandated to it in the same way we're mandated to fiat, right? It's like, you have to get paid in fiat, you have to get paid in your local government's currency. So it's not really like that's going away. It's just like losing power. And the fact that Bitcoin exists is just giving us a little bit of power back. I, I don't know if I see a world where everyone makes that the reserve currency because it like as this as this guy says, it's not in the benefits of the states to do that. Um, 
maybe it gets a little bit different when you think about the the situation that that Russia's in, or maybe like these certain Latin American countries. So maybe I should say it's not in the interest of the U.S. government to do that. And I think the what we're all underestimating here, there's sort of a built-in assumption with with Bitcoiners or people in the crypto industry that the Fed gets weaker as it prints money. But it's not obvious to me that that's the case. You know, when you have an endless supply supply of money that you can print, it gives you the ability to basically buy everything, right? And like looking at China, you can see this. Um, and looking at the U.S., increasingly you can see this. I don't know if too many people are aware of this, but um, I read an article where it was like the Federal Reserve started buying up publicly traded U.S. companies and would not disclose which companies they were. And like the Federal Reserve is has historically been fairly transparent, um, but they're not bound to do so. So, you know, I don't know, it, that, that definitely doesn't answer the question to any satisfaction, um, but I think it's an interesting concept to explore. It's, yeah, I, I wasn't aware about the Fed buying up and not letting people know what it's doing, because that sounds very, that's like what China does, where they start buying, like they have a stake in all companies. That's right, yeah. yeah. Oh. Right. So I it's like, like, how do you compete with a, how do you compete with the North authoritarian regime? Like, uh, I was going to say Canada, <laughs> <laughs> caught myself. Um, no, yeah, we're not enjoying those memes. Yeah. Enjoying right. Those memes, yeah. It, it's, it's, how do you compete with, with an authoritarian regime like China? Uh, it seems like the answer the U S is taking is to, is to become authoritarian itself, at least in the monetary sense. And, um, if you're familiar with, um, I think it's called like Oh my gosh, it's like it's, it's it may be called something as simple as just like monetary theory, but like they have this new monetary theory, which is just like like it, nothing. There, there's really no concept of debt anymore because we could just print 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 money, and that's just like the the layman's version of it. But it's pretty horrid mm-hmm. what people are up to in the government. Yeah, I think this this situation kind of reminds. I think it's called Hegelian dialectics, where it's like mm-hmm. uh, so when when there's like two forces and they, well, that's not the way to describe it. Someone's going to beat me up, but so there's like, there's a, there's a, like a thesis and antithesis and they're like opposites of each other. And when they come into conflict, so like the thesis being like America system and then the antithesis being like the Chinese system. And when they come into conflict, they create a blend or a synthesis of Mm. the, of the strengths of both into something new. And, uh, so basically whenever, you know, if you want to look at like from a Nietzsche standpoint, like, you know, as you look into the darkness, like the darkness looks into you and it changes, like how you do things, like it colors you. And so as, as like what you're saying, like we, we look to China, like as we're competing with China and other countries as, as the United States, um, like we're synthesizing it something new and, you know, maybe not even in a purposeful way, just like it's a natural reaction to something when you're trying to win. You just, it starts like bleeding into you. I think um, you're right about that. And I mean, China over the past, what, 20, 30 years has absolutely done that with, with capitalism. Yeah. And now it's our turn to sort of, unfortunately, do that with authoritarianism. Um, and we could all see that a little bit more with some of the COVID stuff that's been going on. And yeah. I want, I wonder if it's like monocultures. So there was a, I was reading this. I was reading, oh man, I, I need to like, maybe my memory isn't the best, but um, it was basically like, how is it that when Rome was inter- finding new um, cultures and people to trade with, that they all started accepting gold, uh, like uh, currencies that Rome would use and use it as like a part of their currency system? 
Because at mm. first they'd be like, silver was worthless to them in India or whatever. So they'd be like, what? You'll you'll give us like all this stuff for, for this like worthless silver? Here you go. Get all of you want. And, and uh, basically over time, they would start seeing the value of silver because Rome saw the value of silver. And so it normalized the value of silver as like a form of like a currency exchange. Right. And so over time, even though like silver wasn't a form of a currency for them in the beginning, they had other value systems like, you know, like fruit or something else, or like, I think in, uh, like in uh, Japan, like it's the koku, which was like based on rice, like how much rice a person would need for a year. So that like the backing of their systems changed as they were influenced by another system and how well it was, it was successful. And so I wonder, you know, similar to like monocultures, like you drive through the heartland of America, just like all the same type of corn. Um, I wonder if like through like these Hengelian dialectics that we just slow, like we're slowly like melding down to like two or three forms of government mm. and then eventually we'll just like kind of homogenize into like like the worst for, which everyone is like the biggest ugliest thing that's able to just like assert its will on the world yikes huge yep. yikes yeah i think that that's a plot that's a it's a plausible path that we could walk down. It, maybe we're already on it. It's kind of hard to say, right? It, um, yeah. It's, I, I think increasingly like the nation state seems to be less and less meaningful domestically. Mm. And it's like, maybe the nation state, well, definitely the nation state still has value um, internationally, but it's like, you know, when you, it, to, to take a concrete example of this, it's like, if you were to become the president of the United States, you're, you're supposed to be in like the highest seat of power, but you still, because of the checks and balances system that exists internally to the country, there, you could, you probably can't do much, right? Like mm -hmm. the system, and another way of phrasing this is like, the system is so complex, there is no seat of power that's capable of changing it. Not like no singular seat, at least. Yeah. Um, but, you know, internationally, that's, um, that's less the case. So yeah, this is, it's, it's crazy stuff that's happening. It's crazy stuff. Yeah. Hopeful times. It doesn't at all look like 1984 with three powers angry at each other all the time. <laughs> so uh, uh. Kirk, Kirk did have another question. Um, There's like a couple of questions in here. So I'm happy to like go one by one. And I think yeah. to some extent we've like touched on some of these, but so uh, Kirk, you're getting a lot of mileage right now, but the, the, the book discusses centralization of mining servers uh, which are being consolidated amongst a few companies in a few countries, such as like China. Uh, the person says they wish there was a deeper discussion on this, the implications of this. Like if Bitcoin oh, I see. network is trustless and decentralized, and de decentralized, but depends on a centralized group of miners, what are the potential risks? There's like other questions with that, but we can start there. We can skip to the next question. Yeah, so I, I felt that I did go in depth with it, but maybe I was intentionally being unclear because it's like, you know, sometimes sometimes you don't want to be too clear because then you you have to, it's just it's just too political, right? Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, it was being politically vague. Um, but so the, the issue that he's asking about is like in the, I would say this was like more of an issue in like 2016 and stuff like that, but there, there was kind of like this general confusion in the Bitcoin space where that miners had a lot more control that they did. And, you know, necessary technical background of understanding here is that like in Bitcoin, when we say it's decentralized, there's these full nodes that validate transactions that anyone can run and that are distributed globally. And then there's miners that, again, anyone can run. And, and then you put a little asterisk over that because 
um, the, the asterisk is it's really expensive to like get a hold of these miners. And um, even if you do have the money to buy them, you're sort of at the will of the, of the manufacturer and manufacturers tend to be in China, right? And um, the book was published in 2019. So that was before, um, before China had banned mining, which they have since done. Um, so the, what, what he's asking about is like, what is the geopolitical risk of all the mining being in China? And I think the, the simplistic answer to that was, well, there wasn't actually much risk because China doesn't like things they can't control. So like, even if all of the miners were in China, the Chinese government like did not really care about this thing called Bitcoin because it wasn't, it's not interesting to them. It's like, if you have like a giant money printer and you own a portion of every every uh, uh, company in your country, like Bitcoin is so different. Like, why would you want to have a piece of that? Like, you don't need it. You know, that I think that's how they view it. Mm. Um, so they kick all the mining out of their country. And like, since then, a lot of the mining has moved to Texas and, and all, other places in the world, um, basically places where you can get affordable electricity. So yeah, I mean, if, if, to, to go down the technical part of this a little bit more, it's like if mining did become really centralized, theoretically, you could execute this thing called like a, a, a double spend attack, but it's not in the financial interest of the attacker to do so, generally speaking. So like um, a concrete example of this would be, it's like if if you own 51% of the, or if you control, I should say that better than, more, more accurate than own. If you control 51% of the hash power of Bitcoin, you would be able to execute an attack where like you send money to an exchange uh, money in terms of like Bitcoin, right? You send you send the exchange a bunch of Bitcoin on the exchange. You go and you sell your Bitcoin, but maybe the the transaction on the blockchain sending them the funds hasn't actually confirmed yet, meaning that the miners haven't um, swept that up into a block and then and and sealed it, signed it, mined it, um, and then uh, when when because you're a miner, you can basically just like unwind that transaction. Right. And then you then you'd have the funds from selling the Bitcoin and you would have and you would basically suck back the Bitcoin from the exchange back to you as if it never happened. Um, that's the that's the potential vulnerability if exchanges aren't waiting for multiple block confirmation. So the system of Bitcoin is designed to really make that um, quite hard and in more more than just being hard. It's really not um, it's really not in the advantage of the attacker to, to execute that. Um, and if mining becomes super centralized to a particular geographical area, uh, we haven't explored the risks of that on, in this particular rant here, but um, I don't think it's too much of a concern. Hmm. And it's against the attacker's interest in the sense that they would be hurting their, like the value of what they've, like their 51%, the value of it, or uh, not yeah, so that, that's that's right, right? It's like it, attack on the network would be bad for Bitcoin. So like, why would they do that? Um, maybe, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, uh, no, no, go ahead. No, I think that's that. That's just the point that I'm making. I'm just sort mm. of like exploring it a little bit more. Yeah, so I, I I guess I'm like a doomsday prepper in my head where I imagine horrible situations. But what if there was like a like a little AI bot and uh, like it doesn't have like, it doesn't really care how much money it has. It's just its job is to like go out and destabilize stuff. And it slowly is able to like acquire 51%. And it doesn't like its its job is just to destroy and cause as much havoc. So like kind of like a Joker type person, but like like a little AI bot or something. Um, yeah. So the the cool thing about mining, so now I am sort of shifting the goalposts here, but I'll I'll say that plainly is like 
we're, you know, we're, we're exploring the idea of like, what if that happened, but now I have to change the goalposts and say, well, it's very unlikely that that is possible to even occur. So like in order to get 51% of the hash power that mines Bitcoin, you'd have to own, you'd have to like, let's say all the, let's say, let's say you're trying to be, um, you're a new attacker and you don't current, you're not currently mining. Well, in order to get 51%, that means you need to double the existing hash power of mining. So it's like, First of all, that's extremely visible. Like every, we know what the hash rate is that's contributing to mining. So if some, if all of a sudden somebody just joined the network with twice as much hash power, that we would notice that. Second of all, if it's not really possible to do because there's such a there's such a limitation around manufacturing that it would be even with the ability to just print infinite money, uh, being able to buy that amount of hash power is not something that I think is is possible. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think states have interest in doing this. I don't think that's the route they would take if they wanted to, to, to attack Bitcoin. Um, it's not clear to me that that would even necessarily destroy Bitcoin. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's complex. But what I will say uh, to, to the guy who asked the question is like adversarial thinking is like one of the most fun things about these, these systems. So um, it's definitely a great question. It's an interesting thought experiment. Um, thinking about all the different ways you can attack systems is, is good. And it makes mm -hmm. them stronger. So um, I, I don't think it's likely, but it's a it's a good line of, of thought to ask those kinds of questions. And it sounds like you'd see it coming too. So you could just, you know, run away or, you know, like get off the, like sell your stuff or something or like counteract right, it. Right. I, I, well, so the difficulty increases as more hash power, um, as more ha hash power joins the system. So it's sort of like, you know, it, it it would just be extremely hard to pull this off. Like, I don't have the exact numbers. Like some, mm -hmm. somebody should make a website dedicated to this of like how much money would it cost to, 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 to create a 51% attack. Breaking and, Bitcoin. and look at who's actually capable of doing that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, when I looked years ago, it was like, it was, it would be extremely difficult for a single nation state to, to pull off. So it's a large amount of money. All right. Well, uh, Kirk, I, we, we appreciate that line of question. Hopefully that was a great answer. Um, I think it was, but you know, maybe, you know, you'll, you'll have a right, uh, a mean email coming our way, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh I, I, I doubt it. They're, they're very respectful of how they wrote. Um, so moving on uh, to a question I, you know, primed you in the beginning of our, our talk with, which is, um, a bit of a transition, but definitely, you know, still talking about politics a little bit. Um, so, in your book, you have a bunch of really nice quotes about the Fed. It just, you know, I really think it shows just how much you love the, the thing. But so like, this, this will be a hard question for you. But like, if you had to delete the Fed, how would, how do you think it would affect history? And for anyone who can't tell, I'm joking. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, but uh, if you, if you could delete the Federal Reserve from ever existing, how do you think it would affect people, you know, personally, or, or the United States generally? you know, today. So like whatever was made, like, you know, hundred or so years ago, if it just never existed, like how would that affect? Like, it's, it, yeah. it's, it's so hard to even speculate, right? It's sort of like speculating, like what, what would the world look like if we never used like natural gas, mm -hmm. you know, resources or something like that? Or like, we never, we, we, <laughs> I don't know. It's so difficult of a concept because then you're, you're basically just like erasing the history of the U S you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I want to play along because I, I, I do think that that's interesting, but it's like, if the federal reserve never existed, wow. Um, 
So, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is like a lot less interventionism, right? So it's like, cause if the, the, as we just like talked about before, like, um, you know, if Bitcoin, if Bitcoin were to, if, excuse me, if the United States, um, how do I put this? Well, we were saying, um, I'm losing my train of thought here. Um, yeah. I wish I could read your mind and help. I don't know which way, which, which yeah, I'm because I, there's so we were talking about something else that reminded me of where we are now. And it was like, um, maybe I'll just pick a different train of thought. So like, um, hold on, let me think about this. I believe in you. Thank you. Hold on. Okay. So when we were talking about the Fed before and Bitcoin, well, I need your help here with the, what train of thought was this? We were just talking about it. Remind me of the uh, question. Again. Was it shadow buying con uh, co companies? Was it, uh, oh. it was, was it just printing money to buy things so I could buy everything in the world? No. Okay. Here, ask me the question again, and maybe it'll help me remember where I was. Where, where do you think the country would be or what would the effects be if the Fed never existed? Like if you deleted from history? God, nope, totally lost this train of thought. It was good too. <laughs> 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 mm. Like, would we, I guess maybe to like uh, narrow it down, um, would people, I, like, let's take like quality of life or something like, or like, would, how do you think people's quality of life like nowadays would exist because like the fed's job based on their website okay, i remember I okay remember. go ahead for helping me yeah so we talked before about like the history of the united states and what would happen if um if we all kind of adopted bitcoin right like if that would be good or bad for the for people in general mm -hmm. and what i was saying before was that you know if, if you look at the history of the united states like the the reason for us getting like into away from the gold standard was all the wars that we needed to finance. Like we were in so much debt that we would, we, we needed a way to kind of break away from that. Um, which is why, dude, maybe I'm just too caffeinated. <laughs> Cause I keep saying, which is why. And then my brain just like <laughs> fractures into like a million different paths. Maybe it's such a good question that I can't think of it in anything other than like a fractal. Yeah. This is one of those situations where like, if we had like a, a brain computer interface, it would be really cool to see what your brain's thinking of. Just like, maybe, maybe. It's like a kaleidoscope. It's a kaleidoscope yeah, and it just has a picture of the Fed and it's in different colors. Well, it's just like, it's just such a large question, right? It's like, I saw Elon Musk ask a question about how he, like, what if, if you could just remove the ability for oil to exist, like, would you do that? And it was like, no, obviously not. And it's like, mm. if, if I were to just unwind the existence of the Fed, it's like, the first thing that comes to mind, just saying it plainly without getting into like fractal land is less wars, right? But yeah. that in and of itself is like, okay, now who's the dominant power? Is It's like, is it the middle, like who in the Middle East has benefited from this? Because it's probably the, the entire region as a whole is benefited, right? And then that, does Israel even exist? So it's like, you're getting a peek into the fractal here, right? It's like, does the US exist? Does Israel exist? What, who, what is <laughs> happening in the Middle East? How does that affect trade? What has been invented? Everything in, Everything that's been invented in the United States does that exist? Does social media exist? Mm. <laughs> like, so yeah, it did break me a little bit. <laughs> My bad.
but uh, it's a great question though I just didn't it's amazing that I haven't asked myself that I've never approached it from that angle before hmm. was there a form of the Fed that exists in other countries before we made it I think the, the uh, England had a central bank right did England have a central yeah I mean it did a little bit but that was like well I guess yeah. I'm, I'm curious in the same way that we were talking about Hegelian dialectics like if we didn't have it was there someone else out there doing it that would then be able to like wage war and innovation that would then like board the rest of the planet if we didn't innovate concurrently? Right. I mean, so the, the banks that existed to my knowledge, like in England were all basically tied to monarchy. Right. So mm. it, it, it actually looked a lot more like China looks because it was, they're all extremely centralized. Um, like the Federal Reserve doesn't make investments really, or it didn't used to until recently. <laughs> you know, like, um, but the Bank of England was definitely sponsoring all the colonialism that was happening around the world. Hmm. So, like, you could go further back and say, like, well, what if that didn't exist? Yeah. But then that it it's there's a whole YouTube channel about this actually, which the guy can clearly walk these, uh, these thought experience a lot better than me because it doesn't break him. And he made a whole YouTube channel dedicated to it. <laughs> oh, what is it? I'll check it out. I, I have to, I'll have to send that to you separately, but it's basically like, what if the other side won the civil war? What if, you know, the U S never existed. And then he'll just walk out for like 20 minutes. What, what the world could have looked like in that hypothetical scenario. Mm -hmm. And for everyone wondering when we get to the the end of the episode, I will say what it is due to magic. So, so you'll have it. Um, all right, sweet. Then tra transitioning a little bit and hopefully, hopefully this question doesn't, um, you know, cause a similar problem, but like, so for people, uh, maybe not familiar or familiar, like there's some Canadian truckers doing some protesting. Um, and, uh, the Canadian government, it, you know, if I'm saying this wrong, like, you know, feel free to correct me, but like, they're like, we're tired of your shit. So we're taking your money. And they started like freezing their accounts. I think like someone, like they, they took like their GoFundMe money as well. And so I'm just wondering, like, uh, generally protesting is a good thing. And so I imagine if protesters, you know, it's basically uh, to, to ask the question is like, how can Bitcoin or blockchain help protect protesters or well, even union strikers? Like the John Deere was having a strike. And one of the big things was that, like, will their war chests survive long enough to irritate this billion dollar company that even with the strike made like $6 billion in profit? Like, how, how can Bitcoin and blockchain technology enable, uh, you know, these protesters like, like the Canadian truckers or like the John Deere uh, strikers, which they're already over, but protect their war chests and allow them to project their, their political interests to uh, achieve their objectives? Yeah, so I think what, what you're, you're, the framing that you put that in was from the perspective of the, the Canadian government, right? So it's like, oh, we're tired of your shit. And really it was probably much worse than that because it's like, they never say that directly. They say like, you know, all kinds of other things like you're, you know, uh, misogynistic or, or something like that. Um, something that doesn't really make sense, but it seems to just be like their line of insult for, for now. Yeah. Um, I think the most obvious way is, you know, when you get financially censored like that, it's really a threat against your life. Yeah. And it, it, we talk about censorship in culture when it comes to like, oh, I got banned from, you know, the the town square, which I got bound, banned, from, banned from Facebook, banned from Twitter, 
banned from speaking, which is already egregious, but like the ability to ban someone's ability to survive monetarily, like their livelihood, like that's so much worse. If, it's hard to even imagine how much worse, but it's like, yeah, you, you can't you can't survive like that. It's, it's a threat against your life. That's how I would take it. Yeah. Um, I did see that um, in regards to the truckers in particular, that I think it was the state of New Mexico, the governor of the state of New Mexico has offered practical asylum to people who were <laughs> who were in Canada suffering this. So the obvious answer for Bitcoin and why a lot of the donations have been happening in Bitcoin is because when you donate the Bitcoin, you ca that can't be seized from you. Um, but they can make it extremely difficult. They can try and track you. So like there's, it's still not perfect, right? right. And, but if it's, it's probably the best lifeline that we got right now to being able to survive in some capacity. And, you know, people more importantly than just financial survival is like people showing their support. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if, 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 you've, if you've ever, if you find yourself in a situation like that, where someone is attacking you monetarily, it can feel, I mean, that's so extremely isolating. So yeah. for the ability for people to be able to establish a community around you and send funds to you when you've been banned from all the different platforms is, it, it's a way of reintegrating that person into, into society to some degree. How useful it is to actually buy things is sort of another question, right? It's like, it's not like those people can go and turn around and like pay their rent because they're, especially if their name has been dragged through the mud. So it's good that it exists, but it's, it's not enough. It's not yeah. enough. <laughs> so It reminds me of, you know, a hundred or about a hundred years ago when people would pro, um, protest or strike in America, like they deployed the national guard on them. Like, <laughs> you know, like the people literally died for like the, the 40 hour work week or having lunch. And I, I hear about people all the time being like, Oh, I'm not going to have my lunch. So I can make an extra like $7 an hour. It's like, I mean, I get, you know, I, I, you know, not to put down, like, I guess that $7 is very important, but it's like people died. So you could have it. And then like, they're just like, they slowly, they slowly due to pressure, put these safeguards and in, in because people are saying like, Hey, we, we don't want these types of things because these protesters and stuff say it's really important. And then like over time, it's like people forget how important it is. And so they're like, well, if you don't want lunch, we'll just take that away as an option. You can just work eight hours a day mm. and come home and be tired and stuff like that. So, um, so it's like a similar thing. Like I, like it, if they don't have the money to survive, it's just like a slow death. Um, which is kind of ironic. Cause like, I think it was like six months ago, like, wasn't like the Canadian prime minister apologizing. Cause they just found like a thousand dead native Americans in their, in their schools or something. Wow. So you think that you think they would like maybe be nicer to people in the public, but, um, so I guess like if you had to like do a protest or, or something like that, what I imagine it'd be like blockchain uh, focused, like this type of, of technology. So you, you, you would have the insurance against a, a central agent disliking what you're doing. And well, I mean, the philosophy of cypherpunks, which is like the developers and cryptographers that build and work on Bitcoin is that it's, it, it is its own form of protest to be working on these systems. That's mm. it. Right. It's like, pro, it, it's, protesting out in the street, protesting by, you know, joining the government, like maybe those are valid ways of, 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 of achieving your path in life. But like the way that cypherpunks view it is you protest through code and maybe protest is even the wrong word a little bit. It's like you, it's almost, you could phrase it a different way. And you could say, you don't protest, you build the new thing. Mm -hmm. It's like, don't criticize the thing that exists, just build the better thing. But yeah, that's really hard when you're protesting against nation states. It's not like we can go just like to Mars.
Yeah, not yet. Yellen's working on it. The all right. So I, I am curious, like taking this to it. I think extremes are fun, you know. But like, uh, if our all of our digital lives were decentralized, how do you think that would impact? So like, let's say over the next ten years, we go from like pseudo. I I would say like ninety percent centralized. I don't know what the ratio would be to being like a hundred percent decentralized in our digital lives. Do you, do you see any over overtly positive things that would come from that, or or, or overtly negative things that would become become from having like an like a hundred percent decentralized digital life? Yeah, I mean, I so I think when you're just looking at crypto from like a superficial lens, like the word decentralization seems so positive, especially when we're surrounded by centralized entities that like that makes sense as a as a valid question but like when you live your life building these decentralized systems like you see all the downsides of it more closely and it's like things like key management things like the cost of decentralization like I think that that would be tremendously expensive so um, I hope that I'm wrong and that we find ways to like within the case of federations we find ways to to balance centralization and decentralization in a way where we can get the most productive properties of self-sovereignty out of them without all the costs so basically things would cost more and maybe be slower because of the bandwidth on like the bandwidth on the network yeah it's like a really simple example is like you know like when you go to like buy a coffee or whatever like you're not really i I don't i can't recall who pays the fees in that scenario but it's like a minuscule amount of fees for for you to swipe the card it's probably the merchant that pays yeah i think the merchant does yeah and like with 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 crypto it's like maybe it's you're paying a transaction fee and the transaction fee is increasing based on the demand of the space on the chain. So mm-hmm. it can get really expensive. And like, you know, it, it, maybe it sounds boring to say that it's expensive, but if everyone goes to make transactions at the same time, because of some geopolitical event that's occurring, that's a really big problem. Um, you know, you don't want to disenfranchise the, the bottom rungs of your society because they can't afford fees. Right. So it, it, it's, I'm really glad crypto exists, but there's still a long way to go and a lot of different ways to innovate here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like to the answer the 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 person, the gentleman's question earlier, like what's the, how does the the Bitcoin um, alleviate the, the the similar pressures like the gold standard? It it sounds like it's like a balanced diet, you know, like uh, before we're, like previously we're just like all on like potatoes, and now we're getting like meat and steak and some other options in there, so we can have a balanced diet in our financial lives. So that's not, you know. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. Yeah. All right. So uh, coming to our, our, our last few questions, uh, I'm always curious, like how to, especially people who are great self-learners, right? Like you went from zero to just figuring this out. And you had a community around you, of course, um, of people that you could ask questions to. But I'm, I'm curious, if you had to take someone today and take them from like zero to being effective or being a part of the space in some way, uh, and they, they assuming they start with your book, and content, you know, the YouTube channel, everything, check out the show notes. Like, how would you build that person to be an effective? Like what, what books would you recommend? Uh, what things would you suggest they do? Kind of like, like a build, like a, like a, like a build a bear for like figuring out like their way through the, this space. I think I respect people's agency too much to answer that question super directly because mm-hmm. it's like, I don't, I'm not a, I don't know what the industry needs, but I think taking a more um, maybe philosophical approach to it is like you as an individual are probably the best person to say how you could contribute. Right. And, and I don't know what that is and, and, but you might, and Mm -hmm. if there's something about crypto or Bitcoin that just draws you in and explicit inexplicably, like 
there's you should definitely pursue that and understand if this is something you're just interested in um, because it's because of number go up or if it's something you're interested in because you want to pursue it and like contribute to it. Um, so yeah, I mean, reading Bitcoin Clarity is great. I'm working with a company, um, Chain Code, on building a developer course. And potentially that would also, it would start off as like a, a course for developers and UX designers and then split off into like two different tracks. Um, so I think you can apply for that on their website or you will be able to shortly. Um, but, you know, I've, I've talked to a number of people who are like, hey, like I'm in Ireland and I want to, you know, really get my local politicians to understand this. And like, you know, you or I don't know the path for that, but they might. So the, the big important thing is like, understanding enough about the properties of the system and understanding enough about crypto that you feel confident using it. You don't need, I personally believe you don't need to be a developer to understand these things and, and figuring out what, what you want to contribute. Mm -hmm. I think I agree and echo your sentiments in that if you, if you have your North star, you know, why you want to do it and what your goal is, you can cobble together what you want to learn around that. You can ask very specific questions instead of, you know, how would I, how would I learn Bitcoin, right? It's like, how would I learn this very specific point of this? Or like, what, what's something that you're not understanding? So you can ask uh, like a two second, like question to an expert. And I, I, I email people all the time. And if you can ask a very specific question that shows that you did your homework, like, I think everyone, I don't think I, I literally have like a 99% or hundred percent response rate from like everyone who, who will appreciate you not wasting their time and asking very specific questions. So I, I, I echo and like share my, a little bit of my uh, experience in that if you do your homework and you and know what you're doing and you run into a problem, um, and this assumes that you're just kind of like lone wolfing it, which it's, it's probably better to like join a community, a discord or something as well. Uh, it'll, it'll, it'll be much easier because then you, you can ask questions to, to help your, yourself along the way. Yeah. And if you can, like some, some actual advice is like, you know, to, to go to local meetups because that's mm -hmm. how I've met so many of the people and, you know, the community can exist in a number of different ways, but yeah, going to local meetups, trying to find a way to, to contribute to those. I, I would go to local meetups and then someone asked me to build a website. And the next thing you know, I'm like working at different Bitcoin companies. So it, it can just happen in, in odd ways that you would not expect. I'm always surprised, you know, for anyone who's looking in at startups or anything, and they're like, oh, I have to have X, Y, and Z to even like approach them. Like there's usually like some type of credential or some type of like experience they need to have before they even will allow themselves to fully try to do the thing that they would love to do, like to learn about Bitcoin and learn about cryptocurrencies, wherever it is. Um, it, it's a big surprise because I used to be the same way, how little you actually need to know in terms of like, do your homework, do your work, but then, you know, try meet people, ask great questions and, uh, you know, you know, put yourself out there. I, I've noticed, especially in people who email me from the show, a lot of people think that they need to like get a PhD to like do X, Y, and Z and stuff like that. And it's really, if you have the interest and the passion and you're doing the work for it, you're already doing enough. Then just put yourself in a position where you can actually do something useful. Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Any, uh. anyone, anyone new listening in, hopefully that helps you. Um, so then uh, I think like two or three questions left. Um, what, so we've been talking about questions for you to answer. So I always, I always love to ask this question, which is what's a question that you do not have the answer to? like a specific one that you'd love the answer to like maybe someone listening in could it could yeah, write think, you in or something like that well so we did have the the one question that i asked earlier on which is like i don't know the exact amount of money um that it would cost to execute a 51 percent attack and it would be really cool if like a live website existed for that 
that would just constantly update based on the existing hash power and the cost, right? So you'd have to do an approximate cost because that's based on electricity or something. But that, to me, that would be such a cool website. It would 100% drive traffic to that. <laughs> Sweet. All right. Anyone who makes that website, you let me know and I'll, I'll send it around. And we'll, we'll, so basically this is like, if you want to like get in the industry a little bit and get some exposure and kind of do something kind of neat, and uh, you can call it, you know, a Bitcoin breakdown or, or something fun. Um, then uh, I, I believe- I have another one, actually. It's a bonus I, now. Yeah. Another one is you, it's impossible to know how many Bitcoin users there are, right? Mm. And like, because one, one wallet doesn't equate to one user. And it would be really interesting if all the exchanges in some capacity pooled their data. And then, because- you imagine that one user probably has access to multiple exchanges. And if we could, if we could actually get an understanding of the approximate amount of like Bitcoin holders, like that would be fascinating. Although it's probably impossible. It's in the category of unknown unknowables. Is it a part of the benefit of the system to not know it? Like yeah. to make it unknowable? Yeah, it is. So, so it it's is. kind of like a, you want to look behind the curtain of Oz. Yep. Yep. <laughs> It would be really interesting to see like how, how that grows over time, what brings people in. It's like the way I think about it is like every time there's like a hype cycle. Mm -hmm. So anytime the price just rallies really hard, like a bunch of people come in during that, but also you lose a lot of people with that because people sometimes buy in at the top because of FOMO or whatever, and they like never want to buy Bitcoin again or something. So it would be really interesting to see the, the cycle of how usage, what, what drives usage outside of places like the US where it's simply just price. You know, looking at countries where um, they're using crypto for 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 just basic survival, like that that to me is really interesting. That's an interesting question. So, if anyone has, you know, you could add, make another website where they approximate that number somehow. Uh, we we right. will check it out. Um, at one point in time, I, I swear you were talking about making another book. Are you still doing this? Are you still writing yes, one? I am, oh. except for it's 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 slow going because I'm writing like multiple books in parallel now. Mm. Well, what? Are we, can we get teasers for them? Like what, what are yes. like the concepts? Um, so one of them is called crypto chaos, which mm -hmm. is just like only roughly outlined. And like, um, I want to explore like deeper concepts in the crypto space that, that go beyond just the simple, like why Bitcoin, how Bitcoin, uh, I want to do sort of like a lot like this conversation, like talking about federations, understanding what types of things could exist in the future, potentially the risks. Um, associated with decentralized systems that we may not be considering. Like, you know, decentralized systems are basically databases that we can never shut down. And that is that, that you know, thinking adversarial adversarially about these systems is is really is is a really good time for me. So that's what crypto chaos will be about. And then um, I'm starting a series on uh, myths and just basically reading cuneiform tablets and pulling things from history. And I've got this whole Excel spreadsheet going um, of like on one axis, I have all the different geographical locations of interest. And then on another axis, I have all the most important events in history. And then I'm kind of like seeing, if you can imagine like a spotlight moving over the globe of all of human history, as time passes, you, you kind of you, you weave that together in some sort of narrative where the, the cool, stylistic part of the, the series, I think, is that, you know, it'll be one story that bleeds into the next for the next book. So it's like, um, in particular, I like to use this as an example, but like maybe one one book in the series is about Solon, 
and you know his contribution in in, in ancient times and then he, the the story ends with him meeting Aesop and then the next story would be about Aesop and Aesop's fables and if you could do all of human history that way like if I have enough life that would be what that series would be about so kind of like a like a Baird like a, like a Baird sitting around a campfire telling the stories of humanity through myths uh, well, I guess it's not limited to myths, right? So it, like it starts with myths, which is like mm -hmm. why that's on top of mind. But okay. it would start with myths and then kind of go into legend and then it would go into like ancient history and then Middle Ages and Enlightenment to modern. One person what following particularly like the hero of the time. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I definitely know how you could start the book, which is like the opening to Lord of the Rings. You know, some, <laughs> some myths become legends, some legends become lost, you know, whatever it is. That'd be a great opening. Oh, that's funny. It's yeah. actually, now that you mentioned that, I'll, I'll shout this out, but I'm working on another book with some cryptographers called, um, I think we're going to call it the Shamir Sugar Chair Codex. And we, the reason why you reminded me of that is because I think we want to put a quote in there from the Lord of the Rings, which is like, keep it secret, keep it safe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, basically, the idea is that you can take a secret and using no computers at all, you can turn that just like with, with dice and these things called baubles, which are like paper computers, you can split the secret up into multiple parts, or you could say um, N of M parts, and then you can reconstruct those, those uh, the parts to, to reconstitute your secret. Mm -hmm. So, but that's, that, th those are the projects. So they're all kind of, they're all slow going, but if you have a preference for one of those, I really should start a, a better mailing list right now. The only mailing list that exists is uh, as the one at getbitcoinclarity.com. I like myths. I also like cryptids because I think they're neat. Uh, I, I've, I've wanted to for some time. There's like this guy on YouTube who gets like a GoPro and he goes and interviews like Amish people or something. And he okay. just like, he talks to them and lets them tell their stories from their point of view. And, I, mm. and I've, lo I've loved the idea of just going to small towns and like talking to like a pub owner, uh, like the, uh, the, it's not the cemetery person, like the, the funeral home director and then like someone from the city office and then have them tell the story of the town for, and then like overlay the, the different message of them. Like, cause like those three people would see different aspects of each town, like those three types of people. Um, so I like myths and like trying to find like, you know, the story of people like, that's kind of like fascinating for me, but I, I, I'd, I'd read all of them if you need a better reader or something. Yeah. I, I think my favorite are the, the origin, the origin myths, mm -hmm. how the understanding the universe and you know, Genesis or, or even just like the creation. I, I heard a really cool one recently where it's like, I think a lot of people who, who like myths are, are familiar with like the Greek myths and like, you know, everything comes out of chaos. And then you have like um, Gaia, mother earth and all this stuff. And recently I heard of this uh, other God who's not mentioned um, in, in most of the tales of the myth, but his name is, Anon or her name is Ananki. And basically hmm. it's like the, the driver of fate, right? It's so it's like, chaos mixed with fate is what caused the earth and sky to separate and it's like like not faith as in um as in being faithful but like fate as in like destiny mm -hmm. so yeah i i love this stuff it's really really interesting i really it, it's amazing that the way that the human psyche tried to figure out the the cosmos is also lines up with science in a lot of ways in my opinion yeah I, I agree. I think it's like, uh, you know, animals only have their instincts to ma uh, to a great extent, their instincts to navigate the world and figure out like what's right and what's wrong. 
And so even when we didn't have the scientific method or today's availability of discerning what's true and not true, sometimes I wonder if like our instincts were powerful enough to kind of deduce what was there, even though we didn't have an ability to like abstractly describe what is there. Yeah, yeah. I, I sometimes I sometimes am, am a bit envious of like old school ancient Greek philosophers because it's like they didn't really need the validation of things like scientific papers and you know like they, they in order to feel like their theory was valid you know like plato would just like make a theory about what constituted the universe and like his mind was enough in his opinion <laughs> he mm -hmm. just he d doesn't need all the fluff that we need to go through today in order to to convince yourself that you're you're onto something there's a there's if you're interested in creation myths like this isn't a real one this is the one like related to lord of the rings uh okay it, 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 you can read like the Silmarillion, but there's a guy named Evan Palmer. I mean, I literally just looked it up because I wanted to make sure I say it right. Um, he made a graphic novel. It, it, it's about the, like the creation of, you know, Arda, like the whole world. And it is so beautiful. Like I've emailed this guy about getting a copy of it and he doesn't do it because he's afraid he's going to get sued. But it, it, it's so, I, I'll like send it to you. But like, it, it's basically like the Bible but it, it's really nice because like the mm -hmm. J.R.R. Tolkien was a devout Christian. And so you have similar, like all of the universe is basically sang into being. It's, it's quite nice. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Do send that. And that was Kira Bickers. And this is the Learning with Lowell show. And just, you know, a little bit of podcast magic. The name of the YouTube channel that we were talking about is called Alternate History Hub. Check the show notes. It'll be there as well. If you liked this episode, if you hated this episode, if you want to hear more about this topic or a different topic, message me, add a comment. I'm very receptive to these things. You can find us at learnwithlowell.com. 